John chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole thing tonight, 1 through 18. We're not going to cover the whole thing. There's just, it could be completely a series in and of itself. It's a very complex and a lot of depth to this passage. We're going to survey it. John 1, a different kind of opening to the Gospels and a different look in one sense at the Christmas story. Matthew starts off with the word Genesis in the beginning. Mark uses this the phrase, the beginning of the Gospel. Luke says, from the beginning. But John says, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made through Him were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone who coming into the world was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I have said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Those last few verses, 14 through 18, are what we're going to try to really concentrate on tonight. There's an old hymn, maybe you remember it. If you're my age, you probably have heard it at least once. The old song, I think Tony DeQuinzio used to love to lead it in, in, in church. It was called Down from His Glory. Do you remember that song? If, I don't know if you ever really thought about it, but it's a rich incarnation song. And it goes like, down from His glory, ever living story, my God and Savior came and Jesus was His name. Born in a manger. And it's awesome. I really have put a lot of time into thinking about this song a lot in recent days. A lot of about God... Jesus being God and Jesus being man, back and forth, back and forth. Born in a manger to his own a stranger. Sounds just like John we just read. Maybe some of it came from that. A man of sorrows, tears, and agony. What condescension bringing us redemption that in the dead of night, not one faint hope in sight. God, gracious, tender, laid aside his splendor, stooping, Really good word choices. Stooping to win, to woo, to save my soul. Lastly, without reluctance, our text, verse 14, flesh and blood, his substance, he took the form of man, Philippians 2, revealed the hidden plan. O glorious mystery, 
sacrifice of Calvary, and now I know you are the great I am. You know, back and forth, God, the word God, the word man, back and forth. And of course, the chorus, listen, this is, it's not just about rehearsing Jesus' humility and all those wonderful theological truths, but the chorus just tells us how you need to feel it. And Jonathan Edwards says, it's always good to feel the truth as high as you hear it taught or preached. The chorus says, oh, how I love him, how I adore him, my breath, my sunshine, my all in all. The great creator, John 1, became my savior, and all God's fullness, verse 14, dwells in him. Oh, what a beautiful song. Oh, you know what? I want you to think tonight, as we think about the incarnation, we we talk about John's prologue and how it affects the entire rest of the Gospel of John, I want you to think about how can you respond to the incarnation, to Christmas, to God becoming a man in ways that you can say, oh, how I love him. (laughs) How I adore him. He's everything to me. That's when you know that you get the meaning of Christmas. That's when you know you felt it. John's prologue, the verses, the first 18 verses, you know, they're, right, they're very different, as I mentioned already, from the synoptic gospels. They don't start the same. Most of them start with scenes on earth. This one starts in heaven before the earth ever was made. Um, there are themes, and I'm going to tell you about the prologue in a minute. Please follow me because none of the rest of it will make sense. And we are going to, this is a Bible study, so get ready because we're going to do a lot of turning in John's gospel, and I hope you'll do a lot of writing. New creation is a theme. Because in the beginning is the first words of Genesis, also of John. Also, if you look at 1 John, you'll see that. Light, darkness themes. Literally, if you follow the entire trajectory of the Gospel of John, you'll find that almost all of the major themes in this Gospel are encapsulated in one way or another in the prologue. So let me just, if you're taking notes, and I do this mainly tonight, and you're going to say, well, it's a lot of stuff. I'm hoping that this will spark your interest in studying some of the things even further that we give tonight and beyond. So let me give you the framework and structure of how it works. The prologue is put together very intentionally because there is one verb, and I know it's the, it's the word be or become, it's translated come, genomai, it is used ten times in the prologue, ten of them. Three times in verse three, and you can see it there, so you can find them. And the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so you, you're going to be able to find, it's, the, it's kind of a be verb kind of a thing, or become, come, that sort of thing. It's three times in verse three. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything that was made that was, that was made. Uh, verse six, verse 10, verse 12, verse 13, verse 15, verse 17, and every single section of the four sections of the, it's used every single time, and I would say purposely because he's going to tell you that there's a progression going on. It's a word become describes the creative power of God, and the song got it right. The great creator became my savior, right? So there is an in purpose for the creation of God 
the whole thing of the world. There's a, there's a purpose in bringing John in the world. It's used of him. God's creative power put John in place. God's creative power says, I give people to become, there's the verb, children of God. And that creative power is also the very power that brought Jesus into the virgin womb of Mary. And so from the very outset, with just the outline of the verb be, God wants to show you how awesome and powerful of a creator he is. Not just stars and galaxies, not just transcendent things or way out there things, but things in our world, things that were so important, people and strategic people in God's plan. God has all of it in mind. And then if you're writing down or taking notes, this whole thing is set off by a bracket. And it's the only one of its kind in the Bible because the phrase describing Jesus or the name, the word, is only used here and once in Revelation. So it begins, the first part of the bracket is, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now the other part of the bracket goes all the way down to verse 14, and the word, all right? So here's how, if you're going to study it or look at it, at least I would encourage you to, the first 13 verses with the first part of the bracket, the first three uses of the title, the word, talk about the word being God. The second, verses 14 through 18, I call that the word slash God. The second part is the word slash man. Because that is going to be crucial all the way through the Gospel of John. Because all the Gospels ask and answer this question, who is Jesus? It's an identity question. And so you're going to find that the word God, the word man, those two things connected, not separated, not differentiated, but put together are absolutely crucial. And the reason that people reject Jesus his own people, is they cannot, by faith, put those two together. They can't. And our world cannot either. Jesus, to many, is a good example. He's a great philosopher, awesome teacher, very ethical, and all the other things that people want to give him and the accolades they want to give him. But he's not God. And there is Gnosis, another other sides of it that he's God, but he really wasn't a man. He just appeared to be. So to put them together, John does a great job for us, and it's absolutely necessary. And so I want to do this. And again, <laughs> you're going to laugh a little bit. There's 30 examples I want to look at. 30. What am I, out of my mind? Yes. Okay. So I, th- I went so far as to take the word God, the word man, And I want you to see the stories in John's gospel this way. See, there is a cosmological history, meaning cosmological, meaning God created. It's supernatural, right? And then there is a historical narrative, the cosmological narrative and the story narrative. And what you find is these two strands of narrative run side by side the whole way. They support one another. You can't have the one without the other. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the one explains what's going on behind the other. So you're going to get stories in John's gospel, and I'll show you in just a minute, that there are a lot of events going on. People are healed of diseases, blind man, and all kinds of things that are going on. And eventually Jesus' own crucifixion, his resurrection. And if all you have is God, Jesus as a man, none of it will make sense. 
You won't see what the cosmological power of God is doing behind all of them. From the very outset, and that's why the prologue is key to the rest of the book. And by the way, commercial. Two really good books, small, very easy to read, very powerful, helpful, and informative in a lot of ways. Not new, not old, old, but older. They're probably less than 100 pages each. They are by the same author, and they, one is called The Beginnings, and the other one is called The Endings. And all they are doing in the entire book is taking the Gospels and some of the books of the Bible and showing you how the endings and the beginnings are very crucial if you're going to understand anything in between, right? And so if you want to get those, mark them down. I, they're cheap, too. I, I don't know if you can buy them new at Amazon. You might be able to. But they're definitely found used in a lot of places. I have found them very helpful multiple times, and I, I hope that's a good help to you too. But the two stories are being connected, narrative strands side by side, the cosmological and the historical. Now, one more thing before we take a look at some of them. I want you to see what he says in verses 14 through 18. And I want to, there are so many themes. I can only do one tonight, as you can tell. 30 examples for one is over the top as it is, right? So let me show you. And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side or his bosom, has made him known. So how do you get it? We, it says, verse 14, and we have seen his glory. How is that possible when it says, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time? So we're going to camp on that, and then we'll get to the 30 verses. But let me tell you what Christmas is. The John, I want you to ask the question because I think John wants to show us tonight and ask it all the way through. And here's the question for his first century readers and his 21st century readers, and it is namely this. Have you seen God? And if you are steeped in the Old Testament as his audience was, you would say, of course not. No one has. John even says it in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. No one. You can't see God and live. But yet here's the writer says, we have seen his glory. You know what? You go to, and we're going to come back to it, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, same author, first epistle. He says that we have seen Jesus, and we have handled, we have touched him with our own hands. It's impossible. If he's God, how is that possible? Here's what's possible, because here's what Christmas is. Ready? Christmas means the invisible God has become visible in Jesus. Let me say it again. The invisible God has become visible in Jesus. The cosmological has been connected to the historical because God has became a man. So the two stories are interconnected. Jesus in heaven and Jesus on earth. And the climax at the end is the conflict between the two overlapping all right, so here's what the prologue is going to do for us tonight. Stay with me. Gospel prescribes the reader's comprehension of the plot, and it's going to tell you ahead of time what's behind all the things that Jesus does. 
All right? Here's what he's going to do. He's going to show us how important it is to answer the question, can you see God? Has the invisible become visible to you? All right? So here we go. How do I answer, have you seen God? Well, the answer would be, if you're taking notes, if you're reading the Old Testament, you would say, no one has seen God. John repeats it again in his epistle, 1 John 4, 12 and 20. No one has seen God ever. No one can see God. Now, write down, the first person least recorded, or one of the first people, Moses in Exodus 33 is, on, is with God in his presence, and he says, if you don't go up with us into the promised land, then we're not going to go. Um, we need you to come with us. As an indicator of that, he asks him, please show me your glory. God talks to him and says, I can't basically show you my glory. You cannot see my face, uh, Exodus 33 and verse 20, for no man shall see me and live. You cannot see the core essence of God's glory and remain alive if you're human. Other Old Testament characters have seen or thought they have seen God. Manoah, remember, he said that when the fire came down, consumed, that he thought, we have seen God, we are going to die, he told his wife. Abraham saw God. Jacob wrestled with God. I mean, there's numerous examples in the Old Testament of that. But you cannot see God. People have seen theophanies or Christophanies of God, God coming and taking on human form, but not his essence. You can't see God. Let me tell you how crucial this is. You can turn there if you want to. Numbers chapter 4. When's the last time you turned to Numbers in church? Numbers chapter 4. There's this long thing going on, and I won't go through all of it, but in Numbers 4, it tells the duties of the Kohathites, who took care, their job was As Levites, they were to take care of all the things in the tabernacle. When they had to move, as God moved them from place to place, they had to pack up everything and take it with them. Their job was to do that. Now, if you're reading the Bible through in a year, you've probably read this through, but you won't remember it because you're probably hurrying as you did through Leviticus. You're going to get out of there to the good stuff, and you probably don't remember this. But can I tell you, sidelight again, read the Bible through... All the time, as much as you can. Read the Bible and just to read it, not to study it, not the devotions per se, but to read it because you need to get under your belt just a back, just an understanding of all the details of the content. It's really, even Leviticus and Numbers are very, very well worth reading because in it, they have the duties, and Moses is told by God that they were to care for the most holy things. All the furniture inside the tabernacle was dedicated to God. And a bunch of stuff is in there. Now, when they had to move it, every, all the pieces of furniture in there had to be covered. And the word covering in Numbers 4 is used eight times because it talks about that this had to be covered. And, and you can read it for yourself. The more important the piece of furniture, the more exquisitely cost was the thing that they covered it with. 
Now, when you came to the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's holy presence, it had a very fine leather covering over it, and it was given more attention, better covering than all the other pieces. The reason was is because God's presence was there. But all of them were important. Um, the Kohathites, it says, listen to this, when they were moving all the holy things, they could not touch them. If you touched a piece of the tabernacle furniture without it being covered, God says they will die. So he says, talk to the Kohathites and make sure that they follow all the instructions because we can't have run out of Kohathites because we need them, right? So God tells them, make sure you follow the prescripted instructions because if you touch them Numbers 4.15, you will die. And then it says this, next paragraph, 4.17, and if they're removing the ark and a couple other items, you cannot touch it and you cannot look at it. They were not allowed to see it because it was so closely aligned with who God was and his glory that you weren't even allowed to look on it. To look on it was lethal. They would die. So it wasn't that you just couldn't see God and his glory. You couldn't see certain things that were associated with it. Listen to it. How serious is God about it? An obscure story. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19. The Philistines have defeated the Israelites... Under, under Eli, and they capture the Ark of the Covenant. They take it, and you know all the horrible things that happened to the Philistines because of it, and after a while they said, please take it back. We're not interested. We don't want it anymore. And so they leave it on the border town. It's called Beit Shemesh, and the people of Beit Shemesh are so happy to get it back that they are so happy they, they, stop, they don't stop and think about the ark of God and what it really is. And it says that when they got the ark back, that they tried to look inside the ark, and they were all killed. And you want to say, wow, why? Because you cannot see God's glory and live. You cannot see it. You cannot touch it. Mountain, the Mount Sinai, God tells Moses, build a fence around the mountain because I don't want anyone breaking through because if they touch the edge of the mountain when God's on it, they will surely die. At one point, he even says in the Exodus 1 when they're at Mount Sinai, he says, tell them they cannot even look at it, which was probably the reason why many of them stayed in their tents and didn't go outside. You couldn't get near it, you couldn't touch it, and at times you couldn't even look at it. Why? Because it's associated with who God is. That's how awesome he is. And so, again, with all of that in mind, listen to 1 John 1, 1 again. It says, but we have seen him. We have touched him. Our hands have handled him. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm telling you something absolutely impossible, that Jesus is God and we've seen his glory. We have touched him. 
completely different. See, the word God became the word man. And notice verse 14. And he dwelt among us. Literally tabernacled. Remember what I told you? Tabernacled. See, all the holy things and God's glory. Every time the tab- when the tabernacle was built and constructed and put together, it was finished. And here's what always happens. When the tabernacle was finished where God's presence was, his glory came and filled it. Solomon, many years later, built the temple. It was fully constructed. And at the dedication, when it was all done, God's glory came and filled it. So what is the prologue saying about how we should view the rest of the book of John? He's saying the new tabernacle, the new temple, the new place where God's localized presence dwells is not the tabernacle or the temple. It's Jesus. Where? In his flesh. Jesus' body, when he became a man, is the place where the Shekinah glory dwells. Remember what I said? And when you construct it, what happens next? You see the glory. So we're not surprised because we're good students of the Old Testament and we see the order of things. And it says this, just like in the Old Testament, and the word became flesh, he tabernacled, he was the tabernacle. And what happened? When he was born, what's the next thing? When he became a man, we have seen his glory. All of those things, all of those things about the tabernacle temple, they all point to Jesus. That's who he is. So that's what the, the, the prologue wants us to do. It wants us to see that the invisible God has become visible in Jesus. And when you see him, you are seeing the glory of God. All right? So now we're going to see how John uses that ooh, in the rest of the time. 30 and 10 minutes. Hmm, three a minute, we'll never do it probably. All right, here we go. I'm going to give them to you like so fast that you're going to probably dislike me. Okay, John, let me show you the first one. And he does the very first story. Have you ever wondered why the prologue and then this story right after it? The verb saw is used a huge number of times. Let me show you a few. 129 says, the next day he saw, he saw Jesus. That Remember? From the rest of the stories on, every time, and I'm not trying to overdo it, but when you, people see Jesus, what are they supposed to see according to the prologue? The invisible God become visible. Okay, You'll find this, that all the people who believe Jesus, follow him, love him, be able to, they, they figure out who he is. And there are a lot of people in John's gospel who look at him and see him and do not believe in him and they hate him. And they want him crucified. John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming, John the baptizer. And he says, behold, which means to look, the Lamb of God. Who is he? He is not just a lamb, but God's lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He said, John says, I, bear, I saw the Spirit descend on him from heaven. Why? Because he's seeing Jesus for who he is. He's the invisible God who has the Spirit of God on him. Verse 34, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So at the first he calls him a man, the Lamb of God, and then he says the Son of God. Why? Because the kind behind the historical is the cosmological, right? At the end of the story, I'll, I'll rush through some of these things. Look what he says. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth, 46? He comes, and again, Nathaniel says, 
Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, Jesus says. How do you know me, Jesus answered. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Cosmological. Not probably to him yet, but the king of Israel. Jesus answered, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. You believe me? Look what he says. You will see, see greater things than these. That's why this story is in there. Verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. You're going to see me for who I am. You're going to see the invisible God and you're going to know that's me. I'm, I'm the invisible God. Let me give you some more. Ready? I'm going to have to quote some of these. Write down John 4, 29. Jesus invites people over and over again. The woman of Samaria invites her friends, and she uses the phrase, come and see. See a man, the word God, man. Come and see someone who told me I ever did whatever I, all that I ever did, 429. Listen to 537. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. It's vo- his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Again, you've never seen God's form, but you have seen me. John 6:40. Everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes on him should have eternal life. John 6:46 Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God he has seen the Father What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before then you'd know who I really am I'm the invisible God 8:56 Abraham rejoiced to see my day he saw it and was glad and then he picked up stones to stone him because you know what he was saying that he was the invisible God John 9 all about the man gone who was born blind. You have seen him, Lord, now I believe. John 10, 33, you being a man, make yourself God. John eleven forty and verse 4, it begins and ends with this phrase. Remember what he told Mary? If you would believe, you would what? See the glory of God. That's who Jesus is. Let me skip down a little bit more. Verse, chapter 12, verse 24. Sir, we, would, we wish to see Jesus. 1241. Isaiah said these things and saw his glory. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. 1245. The ones that are most famous that you're probably waiting for me to say. If you had known me, you would have known my father. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him, John 14, 6, and 7. So you have seen him. You know what you've seen him? You've seen him because you've seen me. John 14, 9, answering the question, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 17, 24, Father, I desire for them to be where you are and to see my glory. The last one I want you actually to turn to, and it's how the book ends. Chapter 20, After the resurrection, Jesus appears to a number of people, one of which is Mary Magdalene. And the Bible says to her, or the Bible says, Jesus says to her, Mary, she turned to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
So what's the first thing she wants to do when she figures out it's Jesus? And by the way, earlier in the passage, a few verses, she saw Jesus, and what did she think he was? Yeah, you know why? Listen, because you can see Jesus, but if he doesn't sovereignly work in your heart to help you see who he really is, the invisible God, you will not see him. Look at the people on the Emmaus Road, Cleopas and probably his wife. They saw Jesus too, but God had to open their eyes. You can't see him. Can I tell you as an application? <laughs> you, if you do not see Jesus and his glory, you will not follow him. So I look at people and I could say, you know why they don't follow Jesus? You know why they come to church and they may read their Bibles, but they don't really, you know why? They've never really seen him. You know that you can read the Bible and know it really well. The Pharisees did, but they couldn't see Jesus. If you ask them the question, have you seen God? They would not say it was Jesus. They wouldn't, understand. they wouldn't believe those things about him. They didn't follow him. But it's when they understand and begin to see, oh, this is who God is. He is the glory of God. And the Bible says Mary figures that out. And the Bible says the first thing she does is she wants to hold on to him, cling to him, touch him. But Jesus wanted her to go back and talk to the disciples and says, go tell them that I'm risen. And so don't hold on to me. I haven't ascended yet. Meaning I think she, he wants to tell them when he's going to be going to ascension and he wants everybody to be there. Later on, famous one, Thomas, what does he say? Everyone else says we've seen the Lord in the passage, but not him. What does he say about it? Unless I see him and... Touch him. Why? Because it's the story behind it, right? It's the story. It's Jesus. You can't see and touch God, but you can because he's Jesus. And Thomas sees him. And what is the story's, can I say it, moral, so to speak, principle? That you don't really have to see Jesus to actually believe it. He said, blessed are you, Thomas, because you've seen and believed. But it's more blessed, what? More blessed. To not see and believe. See, we can't really physically see Jesus and we cannot touch him, but can we know him? Yes. Yes, we can. We can do that today. And see, ours is by faith. I'm going to quote Dennis's verse, right? Having not seen you, love. See, that's what it's about. Have you seen him? Does your wife does your life say, God, I see you. I know who you are. I see God in all that he is. Can I tell you the, what I did and I didn't get to tonight for you is I used every one of those 30 verses and I read through each and every one of them and I wrote down a list of all the characteristics of people who see Jesus, how they respond to him and how it changes their life. Go through it sometime. You may surprise yourself. Read it and see this. Oh, that's what they say. That's how it changes their circumstances. Look how their life changes and what they go and do in the book of Acts because of it. Look how this does it. And look how they thought this. And they used to say this. And they used to do all this. But now it's totally different. Ask yourself, have you really seen him? Have you? Because if you do, if you see Jesus for who he is, the invisible God, it will change everything. It'll change how you view all the historical circumstances, all the thing God, the sicknesses, the cancer, the view. If you see him, it'll change everything. Let's pray.
Oh, Jesus, you are the God-man, the Word of God. And you are the power behind everything in the Gospel of John. Father, can I say, give us eyes to see like that. Jody gets healed. We're not sure all that happened and what took place there, but we're shocked by it. We pray for her, but it kind of blows us away, although it is great. Oh, Father, help us to see you for who you really are. Help us to see you in Jesus. The verse 18 says, only Jesus has seen God's essence, and he exegetes him. He interprets him. If we want to really know what God is like, we look at Jesus. Oh, Father, if we claim to know him, I think we should be like him. I know your word teaches that. Salvation is believing that Jesus is the invisible God. Discipleship is behaving it becoming more like it. Help us to do that the more as a church, as individuals, because we have seen you and we love you and it's making a difference and changing us. May that be true the more we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.